This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello, welcome to episode 33 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. Today we're bringing you a hangout from January of 2016 with myself, Tom O'Toole, talking about conversations with culture. How do we engage the world around us in conversation? You can find this full hangout along with a Q&A on the topic and notes on everything that was said at www dot the broadcast network dot org slash episode 33 so here we are conversations with culture i want to start by reminding you of one of the parables that jesus shared with his disciples so in matthew chapter 13 you see a whole um, series of parables that jesus told and in one of them he compared the kingdom of heaven to a man who went out into his field and sowed some good seed And then whilst that man was asleep, an enemy came along and he scattered some weeds amongst the good seed. Then he went away. So when the seed grew, you didn't just get this good seed growing on its own, nor did you just get the weeds growing on their own. The two were growing together. They were intermingled. There was the good seed and there was the weeds together. Wheat and weeds growing up in the same field. It wasn't partitioned. You didn't have half of it where the good seed was, half of it where the weeds were. It was all mixed in together. So then what this man decides to do is he's going to wait it out. He gives it time. He allows the wheat and the weeds to grow together. And it's actually only after the harvest that he chooses to separate them out from one another. And when Jesus applies this parable, he applies it to what he calls the sons of the kingdom and also the sons of the evil one. And he says that the harvest time that the parable talks of won't come until the very end of the age. Well, this parable gives a little bit of context for what we're going to talk about in these next few broadcast theology sessions. The idea is this, you've got Christians and you've got non-Christians and we're growing together in the world. It's not like the Christian kind of enclave over here, the non-Christian bit over there. It doesn't work like that. Believers and non-believers are side by side in the world. Many of us will have neighbours, friends, work colleagues, perhaps even family members who don't know God. We're together in the world. Jesus says that the time for separation isn't now. Now, the harvest will come at the end of the age. That's an important topic to talk about. That's a topic for a different hangout for another day. The question I want us to focus on now is how do we approach this time right now to the world we're living in, where you've got two kingdoms sitting side by side? How do we approach that? In John chapter 17, Jesus was praying for his disciples. And one of the things that he prayed was this. He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus makes specific in his prayer that he doesn't want Christians to be removed from the world. That picture that he shared in the parable of the wheat and the weeds together, that's exactly how he wants it to be in this age. Christians and non-Christians growing together in the world. Although Jesus does pray that we will be protected from the evil one in amongst it. 
So where to be in the world? Well, given the where to be in the world, in what way should we approach it? Well, as I read the Bible, I see three main ways in which the people of God are to approach the world. Firstly, we're to approach it as exiles. Secondly, as participants. And then thirdly, as missionaries. So we live as exiles because this world as it stands today is not our true home. So in Philippians 3, we're told that our true citizenship is in heaven. So there's a very real sense in which as Christians, we live in this world as exiles, just as Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were exiles in Babylon. And if you read the stories of those men, you'll see that they didn't retreat away from that Babylonian culture, but they actively engaged in it. So they learned all about Babylonian history, Babylonian traditions and culture. They were at the king's palace learning all about that heritage. They were called by Babylonian names. And yet these men had points beyond which they wouldn't go. So for Daniel, a key issue, he wouldn't eat the king's meat. For Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they would not bow down to that statue of the king. They had areas in which they weren't willing to compromise. And yet even in those issues where they weren't willing to compromise, the tone in which they address the issues is polite, it's respectful and it's winsome. They weren't trying to pick fights or anything like that. This exile theme is an important one for us in the world. We can't just pick up and run with everything going on in the world around us. There will be lines for us as well. And it's important that we think through and are clear where those lines are before we end up in the situation where we need them. Now, this isn't to say that the exile theme is the only one or even the main one that the Bible picks up. In a letter that was written to the same people who'd been taken away into exile in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah urges them not to remain on the peripheries of Babylonian culture, but said they were to engage fully as participants. So Jeremiah instructed them to build their own homes, to plant their own gardens, to get married and to have kids in that place. They were to work hard so the whole city would do well. He's encouraging them to be in it for the long haul, to put down roots in that place, to actively get involved in Babylonian life. And this is an important part of how we are to engage with the world. We're to do the things that the world does. Now, we've already talked about knowing where the lines are. It's important we don't cross them. But within those lines, we should participate in what is going on in the world. So that will mean we go to parties. We watch the football in the pub with our mates. We get hobbies. We join running clubs. Uh, We hang out with our work colleagues on our lunch break. We join political parties. It'll be things of this nature, participating in the life of the world. Sometimes we can get it into our head that our churches need to start things that can solve every issue going. But actually, sometimes there are already things going on that we can get involved with. And the best thing we can do sometimes is to get involved and participate in what's already happening. So we engage in the world as exiles and as participants. And then we need to engage as missionaries. So Jesus said we were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Paul described us as shining like lights in the world as we hold out the word of life. We're in the world to win it. We found an amazing salvation in Jesus and we want others to find what we have found. So we hold together these three ideas as we engage in the world. We're exiles, we're participants and we're missionaries. 
Now, that's a little bit of a foundation for how we engage in the world. We're going to change gears a little bit now. And I want to think about, well, what does that engagement actually look like? And particularly when it comes to the conversations that we have with other people. How do we have conversations with people who don't know Jesus? What's the best way to do it? So to do this, we're going to talk about worldviews. We're going to talk about values. And we're going to talk about secret theists. And I'll explain what I mean in a little while. I want to start by describing the situation that many of us find ourselves in. So for many of us, we have conversations with people who don't know Jesus. We do it quite a lot. Work colleagues, friends, family members, neighbours, whoever it might be. We would like to see those conversations be helpful, to be spiritually significant, to draw those people closer to a relationship with Jesus. But at the same time, we don't want to shoehorn Jesus clumsily into every conversation. So if one of our housemates were to say to us, I'm just nipping to the shop for some bread. Would you like anything? We're probably not going to reply with, well, let me tell you where you can find the bread of life. Okay? It's artificial. It's a bit cheesy. And it's probably going to lose us friends. And there's a difference between losing friends for the gospel and losing friends that just being a little bit stupid in the way uh, we engage with people. If you read Acts chapter 17, you see Paul goes to the city of Athens. And the way Paul approaches this thing of wanting to have these meaningful conversations with people is he actually joins in the conversation that's already going on in the culture. Okay, so I don't know if you've noticed, but around us, people have conversations. People are talking about all sorts of things. And next month, we've got Adrian Hurst on broadcast. He's going to be talking particularly about the art of listening and how we can engage and hear what people are saying and what's the kind of message and the thought and the idea behind what people are saying as well. So Adrian will be great next month. It'd be good to be back on for that one. But people around us are talking and they're talking about poverty, justice, sexuality, art, creativity, family, war, peace, borders, nations, immigration. These are all massive topics and people are talking about them all around us. And we want to draw into these conversations. We want to engage in these things, just as Paul drew into that conversation that was already going on in the city of Athens. So if we want to draw into these conversations, how do we do it? Well, the first thing is that we need to realise that conversations can happen on three different levels. Okay, so the first level is small talk, the second level is values, and the third level is worldview. I'm not going to talk too much about small talk this evening. I used to think small talk was pointless and a waste of time. Now I think it's pretty important. You don't get to the other levels of conversation very often without being good at small talk. But today, we're going to spend our time talking about worldview conversations and about values conversations. So I'll explain what I mean by both of those things. We'll start with worldview. As the name would suggest, your worldview is the way you view the world. And everybody has a worldview. Your worldview is your basic story, your narrative through which you interpret everything that goes on in life. So I'll give you a silly example to start with. It's possible that somebody might have the worldview that the whole world is just like the film The Matrix. Okay, So their worldview would be that we're not really experiencing the things that we think we're experiencing, that instead we're just prisoners who are plugged into giant computers and everything is a hallucination. That could be your worldview. 
Now, if that was your worldview, then that's how you'd interpret everything that goes on. So you, you want to figure out what is love. Well, it's just part of the hallucination, isn't it? You want to ask why people suffer. Well, people suffer as part of the program. It keeps us distracted and imprisoned in the matrix. You've got a narrative that answers the questions of life. See, once you have that worldview, you tell the story that makes everything fit into the worldview. Now, as I said, that was a slightly silly example. I don't know anyone who actually holds that worldview, but it illustrates the point. As Christians, our worldview will be centred on God. So God has made the world very good. He's made humanity in his image, but we've turned away from God and the world is broken. God has a great plan to redeem the world. He gave his son to die on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. He's risen from the dead. He's brought new life. He's kickstarted the new creation. And now in this age, the Holy Spirit is on the move. The kingdom of God is becoming established. The church is being built. The gospel is going to all the nations. But it's now and it's not yet because we're waiting for the day that Jesus returns. Now that will be familiar to you. That's the basic Christian narrative it's the christian story and that is a worldview so then when you interpret the world you do so in light of that story so you ask what is love well love is an overflow of the relationships in the trinity between the father and the son and the holy spirit and it's part of what it is for us to be in god's image why is it that people suffer well we suffer because god's good world is broken and fallen and because people have chosen to sin and to turn away from god you see these same questions what is love why do people suffer get answered in very different ways because you're starting with a different view of the world well for other people a worldview would be be that we are here through entirely natural processes so they'd say we've evolved through a succession of random chance mutations and adaptations that made us fit for our environment and there is no meaning or purpose behind any of it those who are best suited to their environments will survive and procreate and pass on their genetic material those who are weaker or less suited will die and not pass on their genes. Again, that's a worldview. That's a a story and a narrative through which you could frame everything. And if that's your worldview, again, you answer the questions differently. So what is love? Well, love is a purely biological phenomenon. It increases our desire to procreate and to pass on our genes. Why do people suffer? Well, there isn't really a why. There's no kind of big picture reason. But one consequence of suffering is that those with genetic uh, material less capable of surviving that suffering will be killed off. And only those fit enough to endure will pass on their genes. So all these are examples of worldviews. Now, we shouldn't assume that we know what someone's worldview is. Even if someone says, I'm an atheist, or they say, I'm a Muslim, or whatever it might be, we can't assume we already know their worldview. These things will differ from one person to the next, so we need to take the time of getting to know someone to find out what their worldview really is. But what tends to happen in your typical kind of apologetics conversations, we'll call it, is that you've got one person saying a whole bunch of stuff that makes total sense based on their worldview. And you've got another person who's saying a whole different set of stuff that makes sense based on their worldview. And it's like these two people are talking past each other, because they are. That's exactly what they're doing. Both people are saying things that are completely consistent and reasonable when they've got that worldview as a starting point. 
but will make no sense to the other person who doesn't share that worldview. So that's what a worldview is. What about values? Well, values, again, the name gives it away, doesn't it? It's the things that we value, the things that we believe are important in life. So, for example, family could be a value. Now, family isn't a value that's exclusive to Christians. By by any means, I know a lot of Muslims and Hindus and atheists and agnostics, all who think family is very important. I also know a lot of people from all different worldviews who don't think family is all that important. But family could be a value. Other values we might have include morality, being a moral person, art and beauty, purpose, reason, order, love, science, justice, community. These are all things that we might value and find important in life. Now, you don't often have people bringing up their values directly in conversation. So I've never had someone come up to me and say, you know what, Tom, I really value beauty. But I heard people say a lot of things that tell me that they value beauty. So when someone comments on an incredible landscape that they've seen, when someone praises how a Michelin star chef has arranged the food on a plate, when someone tells me about a new fashion collection that they've become enamoured with, they're talking about beauty, aren't they? And they're communicating that they value, they appreciate beauty. So they've revealed what one of their values is. Now, when we think about our evangelism, often our thoughts can go straight to the level of a conversation about worldview. So this makes sense, doesn't it? What we want to see happen is the whole story of how someone sees the world change from one without God to one that has God at the centre of it. We want people to change their worldview. But the problem that we have, if we challenge someone's worldview, is we don't have a starting point. So if we make statements from our worldview into their worldview, then it's no surprise that they don't register because there's no no basis. There's no uh, kind of solid ground to stand on in that person's um, way of seeing things that can challenge it. So to help someone to change their worldview, you need to find a starting point within the person themselves. Now, there's two ways of doing it. One way would be about the internal consistency of the worldview. So someone might have a worldview that doesn't actually make sense on its own terms. So it might say things that contradict each other. And that means that sometimes there is scope to ask questions. Okay, so so you believe this, then tell me how this thing works. Okay. That can be a helpful angle to take sometimes, but I find that that way of doing it can lead to conversations that are quite confrontational some of the time. And we can get into those kind of cliched philosophical arguments that don't end up achieving all that much. I think often a much better way of doing it is to start with the values. Now, the wonderful thing about values is that even if you don't share the same worldview as someone, you can usually find some common ground in your values. You might not agree with every value that they hold, but usually there'll be a lot of values that they think are important and that you think are important as well. So you could come together with someone around an appreciation for science or around a sense of morality and trying to do the right thing or about prioritising your families. And what will happen when you talk about values with people is two things, okay? The first one is you'll find you're actually on the same side of the conversation as someone. So rather than being sparring partners in the way uh, it's traditionally thought of, you're actually friends. You're discussing something that is important to both of you. And the second thing that you'll see happening is that those values will be reinforced. So um, 
in you and in the person you're talking to. When you're talking with people who agree with your values, who espouse the same ones, it can help you to confirm, yeah, this sense that these things are important and right is actually true. So we want to have those values conversations. But you might be asking, okay, so we talk about values, that's all well and good, but how does this help us to see a change in somebody's worldview? Because if what we want to see happen is someone's worldview change, how does this values conversation do that? Well, the key to it is that the worldview and the values that someone has are actually connected to each other. So I want you to picture like a spider diagram, okay? And at the center of it, there's like a circle, okay? And this circle is your worldview. And then out from here, there's a whole bunch of lines coming off to the values that are all around the edge, okay? And these things are connected. These lines connect it. And it goes from the worldview to the values. Now, some people have actually thought this through in a pretty consistent but most people haven't most people haven't given this any thought at all but people would assume that the values that they have are consistent with the way they see the world but actually most people are a lot more inconsistent than they would like to think as you talk about values as you reinforce these good things as you reinforce morality justice reason all these great values every now and then it's good to just throw in the why question If someone tells you that family is important to them and the conversation seems to go there, so maybe they're telling you about a great day out with their kids and how they've just appreciated spending time with their husband or or their wife and you're just throwing them, you seem to be really into family. I think that's awesome. Tell me me kind of what led you to, to be such a devoted family person. Just see what they say. See what the why is behind the value and if the conversation takes you there maybe you could even ask the second or the third why behind it and what we're really doing is tugging at this string that links your worldview to the values you want to see what backs it up and by asking these questions you might be just helping people to see that there's a bit of an inconsistency between the worldview that they have and these values that they hold and then you have your starting point You see, the questions that you're asking, now they're not based on your worldview, just kind of speaking into it. They're based on the values that that person themselves holds. When somebody sees that there's a mismatch between the values that they have and the worldview that they hold, well, there's only three things that can happen. The first thing is that they can change nothing. They can say, I'm just going to live with the inconsistency. I don't care that my values don't match my worldview. Well, I think there's a lot of people who are willing to be unknowingly inconsistent, but not that many people. Actually, once they've got to the point of truly seeing that the things don't match, people normally want to sort out that inconsistency in one way or another, okay, to, to shift something. Well, the second thing that could happen is the person might change their values to become more consistent with their worldview. Now, um, this can happen. Put aside the values you used to have and take some new values on, okay? When someone becomes a Christian, this is what the process of Christian maturity is, isn't it? We've got our new worldview, and then our life is coming to match it. Our values, hopefully, will be coming more and more to match it. In other contexts, um, it can happen as well, that people's values start to change to be more consistent with their worldview. Or the third thing that could happen is someone could change their worldview 
to match their values. So if somebody's got this set of values that are really important to them, that they consider um, to be kind of at the core of who they are, and they realise that their way of understanding the world doesn't actually fit with them, it might be that they look for a new story, a new uh, way of explaining the world that more closely matches the things that they think are important. So we've talked about some of these values that um, we might share with our non-Christian friends. So we've talked about family, morality, beauty, purpose, reason, order, love, science, justice, community. I listed all of those as examples. I would contend with you that every single one of those values fits more naturally into a Christian worldview than it does into a worldview without God. I'll give you an an easy example, love. Love fits much more readily into a worldview where the very nature of God is the loving relationships of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's overflowed in the creation of the world than it does into a view of the world that's all about out-surviving your competitors to pass on your genetic material. Now, I do realise that there's a link that you can make in the naturalistic worldview um, to love. You could say, well, yes, our biology is making us more inclined to particularly favour those who have our own genetic material. So it's more likely that our genes get passed on. That's why we have love, particularly for those close to us. I realise you can make a link, but it's just a little bit tenuous, isn't it? You, You don't need to just ask, is there a link that can be made? You need to ask, how strong is the link that can be made? Does this worldview fuel the value? Does it empower it? Does it create it? Does it pump it into life? A worldview that starts with God just pumps out love. You can't not have love if you have a worldview that starts with God. It just fills your life with that. Or if you're being consistent, that's what happens. Anyway, the other worldviews don't do it to the same extent and in the same way. And I would argue that every single one of those values has a much stronger link in a Christian worldview than it does in any other, every one of them. Now, I know that's a slightly provocative statement to make. And if you'd like me to go into the details on any particular examples about how that works, I'd be happy to do so. Ask the question and we'll get there in the Q&A time. For now, I just want to say I'm actually not alone in thinking this, that these values come from a Christian view of the world. And one of the most helpful people um, in thinking this through for me is not himself a believer. In my opinion, John Gray is one of the most thoughtful atheist writers out there. He's much more interesting to read than people like Richard Dawkins and his cronies. Well, a few years ago, John Gray wrote a book called Straw Dogs. And in this book, Gray made this statement. He said, unbelief is a move in a game whose rules are set by believers. And basically that the whole book is meant as a rebuke to humanists. So he's an atheist critiquing other atheists, so particularly humanists. And what he's doing is he's saying to these humanists, look, you've got this worldview that's atheistic, so why do you hold on to all these values that come from belief? That's what it means when he says unbelief is a move in a game whose rules are set by believers. He said, you still want all these values that come from believing in God, and yet you claim your worldview is not to believe in God. Now, there's a friend of mine who coined a phrase, uh, which is secret theists. That's the phrase that he uses. That's the one that I dropped in earlier in this talk. 
and a secret theist is somebody who says they don't believe in God, but they want to keep all of the important values that flow out of the existence of God. And so in this book, John Gray describes what his consistent atheism looks like. And he, the picture he paints of the world, it's bleak. Okay? You don't have these things. You don't have morality and justice and love and community. It's all stripped away. It is hard reading, but it's brilliantly consistent. When you strip it back, when you take away all of the values that would come from belief, what you're left with is a pretty sickening uh, picture of the world. And not many people that I know would want to own that. So as we talk to people, as I talk to people, on these levels of values, I know that these values actually belong to God. They belong from a Christian worldview. And I'm so thankful that my friends share a lot of these values, even if they don't get the worldview yet. So as we talk about them, as those values get reinforced in my friends, and every now and then, as I tug at the strings of what lies behind them, we'll find that often it's actually very little that lies behind them uh, in the case of these people we're talking to. And as our friends see the inconsistencies between their worldview and their values, then God willing, they won't want to um, change their values to this bleak world that John Gray paints. Because deep in their soul, surely they know that's not true. God's laid eternity in the heart of men. Surely they'll see these values are right. These things are true. And they'll start looking for a new story that will explain all the things that they hold as important. And will make sense of all of those things and of everything else in life. And we know what that story is. That story is the gospel of Jesus Christ and hopefully God willing through these conversations with culture we'll get to have the conversations about the gospel we'll get to point people to the one who gives life the one who is at the center uh, of the worldview of the cosmic view of the view of eternity of the true narrative of all of human history may God use our conversations with culture to see many people one for him we hope you enjoyed this hangout for full notes on everything that was said, plus access to the Q&A, you can visit www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 33. If you visit thebroadcastnetwork.org, you will also get access to our full library of training materials and you can sign up for updates about when future hangouts will be happening.